0: It, is everybody comfortable getting on the blog? You all know how to do that now, right? You you all have had, you've not had any problem. If you just type in literature's prophecy, and even it used to be one word. If you if you just type in three words, literature's prophecy, Google has has us at the top of the list. I'm so glad to see that. Um, but if you go into that, go to the content, hit the content option, go to the bottom of the page, and you'll see St. Francis. Visit um, Seaton and go into Seton and you can click on whatever we're dealing with—Virgil, Boethius, Dante, you know, Homer—and I've I've tried to get more organized about about all of that. So when you go in, when you go into the file, um, you can go into um, you know background materials or or um, outlines. It, it, it should be um, pretty easy for you to move around. So, um, <clears throat> Okay, let's say a prayer and then I want to do a prayer and see if we can finish up the Aeneid. Um, I've been wanting to <clears throat> wanting to do this and been putting it off because I'm um, um, I'm not used to doing it regularly but I want to make it a part of what we're doing again. Any prayer requests? from any of you guys we were doing it for a long time and I wanted to go in and I don't want to leave that behind so any any prayer any prayer I have, I have some. Connie
1: have. I'm gonna uh, for um, a real dear friend of ours their son is having surgery um, next week on his spinal cord he has um, he has spina bifida when he was born but he's doing great, but something happened now. So he's got to have surgery in a couple of weeks. And I know that's probably a really sticky, could be a sticky situation. So if we can give prayers for him, for Joe.
0: Joe's his name?
1: Joe. Okay. Boy Chuck. Uh-huh. Okay. And then continue prayers for my mother-in-law. Good. <laughs> um,
0: you and your mother-in-law are going to have a great reunion when it takes place in heaven.
1: I hope so. Yeah. Um... Uh, I, I have some I have one, too. I'd like us to pray for Jim, who is actually my ex-husband, my daughter's father. And he has just been diagnosed with something called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is not a good thing. It, it, it can be not so serious or very serious. And just to pray for Jim and for my daughter, Kim.
0: Jim She's and really, Kim?
2: Jim and Kim, yes. Yeah.
0: I'm so glad you guys are doing this. Anybody else? We all need them um, in one degree or another. Um, Keep Suzanne and I in your prayers, Suzanne and me in your prayers, and our family. We'd be grateful for your prayers. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. um, Thank you for the gift of our lives again. um, We wouldn't be here except for you. Um, we didn't have mass this morning, we did yesterday. Um, we miss your words. Um, for your presence with us through the day for all the ways in which you are here. Um, I ask a special grace for all of us here. We've read the Odyssey um, and that scene in which Telemachus goes to visit Nestor and Athena's right next to him and Nestor says if only Athena were here the way she was with Odysseus well she's there and they don't see her and we have the same kind of blindness Um, we're so literal minded in our sight um, that um, I think sometimes we forget this is our teaching of the church there's a guardian angel. I mean, everybody may have it. I call him my friend. Um, you know, Some people give names. There's somebody present with us, ministering. Um, Christ is always present through some ministry. Something going on that we don't see. Strengthen us please to get past our physical eyes. Um, to be aware that you are always here, no matter how hard, how painful things get, no matter how troubled we are by what's ever going on around us, particularly in our family or in our marriages, um, strengthen us please, um, to trust, to know that you are always doing something to help us get better. One of the things we learned, just so that those of you who are not involved, you know, you're we're doing other readings in the Francis group and and a couple of people have suggested, that because they've been at it for four years, four or five years, to step back and try to put the whole tradition together and we're doing that right now trying to see the meaning of it all um, there's a lot we don't see there's a lot we don't see um, and one of the things that we learn when we step back from this whole tradition is that you, you encourage us to be brave. The saints are all brave. They, they're not bound by the social traditions around them. They don't make religious compromises the way so many people do. They don't compromise their faith. They step outside of that world to bring you to a world not bound by social conventions and you're always there. Um, people may die. They may risk their lives in what they're doing. Strengthen in us a spirit of courage. Help us to be brave. Not be afraid of putting ourselves at risk to do your will. Um, In our families, um, with the world around us, Um, help us to find a strength in the work that we're reading. I ask a special um, grace, Lord, for um, Joe, Watch over him um, in this time of preparation for his surgery. Be with him. Um, Help the doctors to do all that they can, that medical science can do for him. Ask for a special um, grace, too, for Jim and Kim. Um, um, Be with them um, in whatever struggles they have. In in all of those instances, let the struggles that people are are having strengthened them in their faith. We always ransom our life. We just feel like if we don't get what we want from you, you're not there. That's not so. Sometimes it's important to let go and accept a death. or We don't want to accept it. Watch over all of them. Keep them. Let our prayers um, call from you. Grace for those people, and um, I ask I have a special request tonight um, that when sue 's carrying around a case of wine, watch over her <coughs> help help her keep her footing we i'm speaking I think more for myself here and I think for we don't want to lose her I certainly don 't want to lose her, so um Keep her well so she can enjoy her wine. What else is there to say for her? We offer offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. (laughs) You all know there's a risk in asking for prayers when you come on this program. (laughs) Okay, okay. Okay, you guys. Here um, I want to pick up with the "Hore Kanonike, um poem by Auden. You remember? Several weeks ago we started it. Um, for those of you, Mike, you haven't been around, um, and I haven't followed through. That I I read the first section very briefly on that poem. It's in the it's in the um, it's in the section of poems, and it should be with um, I think Billy Budd, but it'll be with the poetry for sure. It's a poem written by Auden, 20th century poet, English, graduate of, I can't remember, Oxford or Cambridge, very very bright, very bright man. Um, And his poetry all is in a colloquial idiom, a very commonplace idiom, so there's nothing of that Cambridge high-class tone or style or spirit present in his poetry. He's just his writing is simple and clean and down to earth. Um, he's written some of the most important pieces of criticism in the, you know, I think, in the 20th century. He's a good critic, uh, but he's known primarily for his poetry. And remember that in the horae canonicae, immolitus Imol- um, um, Picerit, the the um, canonical hours, um, that um, Christ. Sacrified is victorious. That's the title: "Hore Canonicae immolatus. Would share it. I don't know Latin, um, so but I think that's the pronunciation. But translated, the, the title is saying: "The hour, the um, canonical hours, and um, Christ sacrificed is victorious." So the, he structures he structures the poem according to the canonical prayers um that the that the that the monks practiced in their monastic life prime, terse, terse sext, gnome, despers, compline. it goes through the day, morning, mid-morning, noon, mid-afternoon, eat, um, you know, late evening. So um, one of the most important things to keep in mind with this poem is, is an idea we've already, you guys will know better than most people you know that you know you know that something who's somebody who's reading the Aeneid who has not read the and the Odyssey will not know if you pick up the Aeneid and read it and you've not read Homer, you think you may think you understand that poem, but you won't um, but anybody who's read the and the Odyssey who reads Virgil will understand that there are levels of meaning present because so much of what Virgil's doing is carrying Homer with him and changing him all along scene after scene after scene after scene we've been watching Homer carry the past forward and transforming it according to a better love so one of the things we learn from Virgil is that we always carry the past with us redeeming it redeeming it as we go That, that what is taking place in the present moment is just never completely visible on the surface. There's always other levels of meaning and literature's teaching us to be aware of that. It's as if it's deepening our sight, our powers of sight. Odd's doing that with the poem. He structured it according to the canonical hours. So we know that even though, even, even though he's talking about things going on in the city, we're being asked to hold on to Each one of those stages of prayer through the day. So, whatever's going on in the poem, it contains other levels of meaning, exactly the way Virgil does or somebody else does. It's helping us to see that whatever goes on around us, you know, Connie is in her backyard, Bob and Karen are, it looks like they're in the dining room, I'm not sure. Mike's on his couch, you know, Suzanne and I are here in the study. There's lots going on that we don't see. And one of the values of the work that we've been doing is that it teaches us to know that. One of the words for that is the apophatic. Um, we've talked about it a good I I've, I've tried to talk, illustrate it with the Eucharist. When we take the Eucharist and walk out to the car, where are we? When we take the Eucharist, our faith places us in God's kingdom. That's where we are, even with our sins. You know, in that moment, we're forgiven, um, we are one with Him, we're walking out of the car, getting in the car, going home, and we're in God's kingdom. Where are we? Poetry always places us in two places or more, multiple places at once. So when we're reading a poem, we're in the poem, but we're also in our study or, you know, wherever we are. So, Auden's Plain on that, okay. So it's structured according to the canonical hours. Last time we started it, if you remember, the poem starts simultaneously, as soundlessly, spontaneously, suddenly. All those s's. It's like something quiet is happening. You'd hear it in an orchestra. That sibilant sound. Simultaneously, as soundlessly, spontaneously, suddenly. At the vaunt of the dawn, the kind gates of the body fly open to its world beyond the gates of the mind, the horn gate and the ivory gate that's straight out of Virgil swing to, swing shut, instantaneously quell the nocturnal rummage. At that moment, the unconscious, with all of its violence, all of everything that's irrational in the unconscious, is shut. We leave it behind, we enter the day. What what he what he's doing in that first section is showing us is that in the- in the moment when we wake from sleep we leave that dark unconsciousness alone, we enter the world, and in that moment it's as if we're taken back to Adam before the fall it's a It's a similarity, not a identity It's as if we go back um and re-enter the world again, innocently, until we act. Because when we act, whatever we do will carry our fall with us. No matter how good our intentions, no matter how well we set out to do whatever we want to do, and do it well, or kindly, or in Christ, we often fail. So in the prime, um, he's, he's going back to that moment when we first awake from sleep, um, enter the world with all of our intentions, um, and then re-enter the fall. Do we enter a fallen world again. In Terce, the third hour, 9 o'clock in the morning, um, he continues with what he began in that first section. Okay, so I'm just going to read a few passages. If you guys have your copy of it, you can follow along. Oh, wait, here, I, before we go, I've got I've to share this comic moment. I've got to share this one. It's too funny. One of the reasons I was a little bit late tonight is because I couldn't find my glasses. <laughs> I couldn't find my glasses. I mean, it gets really ridiculous here. You don't, you don't want to be here. It's not safe with Suzanne and me. It just isn't. It just isn't. Um, we come into the same bedroom and look at each other and both of us have questions on our face and ask why, why we came into the room and neither one of us can answer the question. It's just getting bad. Anyway, I couldn't find my glasses. And my eyes are getting worse. And I, I, I have a different set for staying away from you guys and another set for what I'm reading. And I couldn't find them. So I was concerned because I, it would, would make it harder for me to... So I went through the house a couple of times and, and I called to Suzanne and I said, I can't find my glasses anywhere. She started looking everywhere. She couldn't find them anywhere. Five minutes later, five minutes late in starting because I wanted to get in on time, she walked into the room and she had my glasses around her neck. She said, I found them. <laughs> at dinner time, <laughs> she picked up my glasses and put them on her. And then at, you know, third time around our house, when we were looking, she realized that her glasses were on the counter. And she put my on by mistake. So I was, I was going, insane, insane. Where are my glasses? i <laughs> she's looking for them too. Neither one of us can find them because they're around her neck just letting you guys know what you're in for here that's that's all oh god okay, terse I have to change my glasses okay, this is how it begins he wakes up from the day he starts the day's activity and he feels some identity with Adam leaving his innocence behind, okay because he knows he's going to act, he's entering a fallen world. After shaking paws with his dog, whose bark would tell the world that he's always kind, the hangman sets off briskly over the heath. He does not know yet who will be provided to do the high works of justice with. Gently closing the door of his wife's bedroom, today she has one of her headaches, with a sigh the judge descends his marble stair, he does not know by what sentence he will apply on earth the law that rules the stars because to the judge those laws are everything and the poet taking a breather around his garden before starting his eclogue, does not know whose truth he will tell so it starts off with this gesture of petting a dog you know how nice it is how sweet and uncomplicated and innocuous, harmless. But immediately, it's the hangman sets off over the breath, briskly over the heath. He does not know yet who will be provided to do the high works of justice. Somebody will do his work for him. You know, somebody's, somebody's going to suffer. With justice in the world, everyday people are going to suffer. They're going to be held accountable for their actions. Um, let's see. Um with a side, the judge descends his marble stair. He does not know by what sentence he will apply on earth the law that rules the stars. He's going to have to make a ruling that is in his mind absolute, um, untainted, that's going to affect somebody in the world. And the poet will be trying to render the world and uh, with the idea that he's got to present people as they are with people holding different truths as they do. Sprites of the hearth and storeroom godlings of professional mysteries, the big ones, those are capitals, capital um, in caps, big ones, who can annihilate a city cannot be bothered with this moment. We are left each in a secret cult. Now each of us prays to an image of his image of himself. Let me go through this coming day without a dressing down from a superior being worsened in a repartee, or behaving like an ass in front of the girls. Let something exciting happen. Let me find a lucky coin on a sidewalk. Let me hear a new funny story. At this hour we all might be anyone. It is only our victim who is without a wish, who knows already. That is what we can never forgive. If he knows the answers, then why are we here Why is there even dust? He knows already that in fact our prayers are heard, that not one of us will slip up, that the machinery of our world will function without a hitch, that today for once there will be no squabbling on Mount Olympus, no Cthonian mutters of unrest, but no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday." So he's going to start out the day thinking everything's going to be fine. Everything will be as peaceful here as it is in heaven. Um, That we're not going to be dressed down, um, that we will do the very best we can, and it'll be great. Um, But what we don't know is who will be a victim of our actions. Um, There will be a victim. We will do something that that will make of another person a victim. And while we go through this day and everybody looks at it as if it's just another day, it's what we do every day, we get up in the morning, we go about what we're going to do, we're going to do all these great things, we have all these good intentions, um, but in some ways, something we do will we'll make it clear that, that we're a part of a fallen world. The great irony of this section and of the whole poem is everybody wants to treat every day as if it's just another day. Except on this particular day, it's Good Friday, and um, so if we're Christian or Catholic, it's a serious question of whether we're really dying to ourselves. And even if we do, according to this poem, I'm not even sure that we can still escape doing something that we would regret wishing we hadn't done it or done it better so that's the second that's the second section the the sext for the Hore Kanonike. I'm going to take um, each one of the five sections um, over the next five weeks and or so that we'll cover the whole poem so um, read it you guys p- take it out of the file print a hard copy take it you know to bed. it's a it's a it's very contemporary. It, it, it's, it, relate, it, it situates us in our world so that we're having to look at ourselves and what we're doing in our world. But remember that he's doing it according to the hours of the prayer. So that in some sense, underneath everything he's describing, <coughs> is a prayer. Help us not just let this be another day the way it is for so many people that this is just another day when in fact it's Good Friday. So, okay um, to Virgil uh-huh. we've got to finish up Virgil um, just a couple of review points um, we've talked about the importance of the city I've been giving a a lot of emphasis you know that and um, the reason I have is because I um, I think it's far more important than most of us realize and the great poets that we've been reading all of them Homer, Virgil, Dante, Shakespeare all, all of them um, treat the city as if it's a um, a matrix it's a it's a template of our earthly existence it, it shows everything great about us, but it also hides all the things that we don't see. And Virgil's city, um, his treatment of the city the coming Rome is, there's nothing to compare it to. It, nobody gets close to doing what Virgil's done. We've seen chapter after chapter after chapter Aeneas struggling to found this city, and in each chapter um, we see him um, coming up against some obstacle, some fault, some failing in our human nature that cripples the city, that keeps it from being everything it is. And what we see when we get to the end is, um, even if Rome is this great city and greater than any of the other cities that he's experienced or even tried to found himself, as great as it is, that the fact that it holds so much good in it, it's still lacking something. Virgil's showing us that um, um, it, as great as man is, um, um, he's inadequate, insufficient on his own. He's lacking something. <clears throat> so if, you, if we, I, I, this, I don't want to press this, but it's, I mean, it's not where I started out, but it, it's, hard, it's hard not to come to this conclusion. Um, I didn't start out using Homer to prove Christ or Virgil to prove Christ, but if you move from Homer to Virgil to Christ, it seems to me it's just impossible not to see Homer's already pointing to him, there are intimations of him, Virgil's getting closer, that these poets are seeing something in nature and something in our human nature that finally gets answered by Christ. It's part of the value of what they're giving us. So we've talked about the city and its importance, um, and we've talked about Virgil's greatness, that he goes, he carries Homer forward, Achilles and Odysseus both, everything about the Greek world that's good, but he also sees that there's something lacking. The, the court, I, you know me, I mean, I, when I do the Iliad, I want to do justice to that work. I'm not going to take anything away from Homer. Same with the, um, the Odyssey. When we get to Virgil, it's impossible not to because Virgil's so critical of them. I mean, if we're trying to do justice to virtue, we can't do it without saying there's something wrong with Achilles, there's something wrong with. Odysseus. What we see in Aeneas is that he's he's capable of feeling um, the loss of things far more than Homer or any of his characters. Um, His sensitivity is much greater, he's much more aware of loss and in any scenes involving killings, Aeneas is far more aware far more likely to feel a sorrow at somebody dying than either Achilles or Odysseus. Okay? So the, the tag on Virgil, Virgil forever has been um, melancholy Virgil, sorrowful jur- uh, Virgil. That There is this capacity to feel the loss of things that distinguishes Virgil as a poet. It's as if he's far more aware of the ephemeral nature of things. That all things in nature are passing. He's so sensitive that his similes, his language, the delicacy of descriptions leave us with a sense that things in nature are ephemeral; they're passing. You can't hold on to them; they're going to go. Um, um, we've ta- I've, I've suggested that Virgil's read um, Isaiah and the Old Testament. You know the Genesis and the Exodus. It's his His poetry is steeped in that Old Testament sensibility. Um, last week, we ended looking at the um, the night raid scene and the beginnings of the battles um, and I want to take a minute just to recall them. You remember that Nisus and Eurelius volunteered to go get help from Aeneas because the stockade was under attack. Turnus was attacking it while Aeneas was off um, trying to get help from Evander. And during that night raid scene, Euryalus gets caught, and instead of fleeing, um, Nisus comes back to try to save him. It's a sacrificial act. Um, when you set that against the uh, the Iliad, the differences become black white. I mean, they're just obvious. Remember in the Iliad that Diomedes and Odysseus went on a night raid scene, but they come back with all this booty, at, with no knowledge that I'm aware of, or anybody's aware of, I think that they learned anything about the 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 Trojan plans or strategies. it was was an expedition in cupidity they they increase their booty. That's not so. The whole motive is different. They want to get help from Aeneas. Eurelius um, puts one of the helmets on his head and the and the, the gleam from the moonlight gives him away. He's captured and the nightest Nisus comes up and says, take me was not his fault. So it's just another chapter in which um, a scene unfolds and it leaves us feeling the loss of something really important. These two men loved each other and there's I mean he makes nothing, no explicit references to homosexuality but we don't know but they loved each other and they offered their lives They gave their lives for what they were doing. One of the other scenes we looked at is when the battle commences. Remember, Mezentius comes out to fight Aeneas. Mezentius, that barbarous ruler, that king um, um, of um, the um, Etruscans, and remember that he, he would punish people by taking their bodies and fusing them together so that they would decay into each other. So the people finally exiled him and he, he went and joined forces with Turnus. Aeneas is fighting Mezentius and he wounds him and his son Lausus, Mezentius' son Lausus, comes to rescue him. He's a brutal man. The boy comes to defend his father and Aeneas kills him. And I read that scene, so I'm not going to go back over. You remember that he stands over the body. what so Wait, hold on. So Turnus has killed Pallas, who's the prince of the Arcadians, and he stands over his body, puts his foot on the body and rips the belt off. So there's nothing but scorn on Turnus's part for this young kid. He kills him in no scruples. He t- he takes the booty. Aeneas kills Lausus and he he's standing over the dead body. It's on the ground and he's almost in tears, he's he's in sorrow. He looks down at this boy and has nothing but good to say about his bravery, his courage, as a boy, um, all of his promise. And then he turns to his enemies um, and says, "Pick this boy up and honor him." So, it, there's a sense in which he did not it's he did not want to do what he did. He had to do it and he does it in sorrow, um, because he feels the loss of this young kid. There's nothing close to that in the Homeric world, not in the Iliad, not in the Odyssey. And the, one of the amazing things that happens in the next scene, and people could just overlook it, they'll just miss it, is when Mezentius finds out about what happened to his son, he says, have I lived so long? Have I you know, become so bad that I let you do this for me? And he is so full of remorse. Um, it, it's, a, it's a moment of turning, you know, the peripatia, where a person sees his faults and wants to make amends for it and says, I will not do this. And he goes back out on the battlefield and engages um, Aeneas and, and is killed. So one of the questions that I wanted to put to everybody last week is, what's going on? I myself think it's impossible to read all of this without feeling something is entering the world even in battle even in battle where people are getting killed right and left something's happening to the world to change people's hearts. Lausus came out in defense of his father Mezentius who is a brutal brutal man undergoes a conversion and says I let my son do this for me Um, remember in the Nicus and Iurelius, the night raid scene, when Iurelius is taken and Nisus comes, come take me. There is um, a capacity for suffering for another, for feeling the sorrow of the wounds of another, of the loss of another, that goes way beyond anything that we experience in Homer. Um, my own feeling about this is i I just think he he had he had read the Old Testament he, Elijah, but he was steeped in the world, so he 's not a prophet talking about things to come he's steeped in the world he's a he is laden you know, heavy with the wounds of the world, so all of his poetry is written from out of a sense of those wounds that something is coming um and it takes the form of being capable of feeling the loss of another. A sorrow. Even if you have to have some part in it. You're Like um, Aeneas when he has to kill Lausus. So, um, my suggestion last week when we ended is that that in an amazing way, what Virgil's doing is taking us even closer to Christ. And, and I, 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 I want to stop here because that's just a quick review of what we did. But I want to remind you of, of one thing, because you're in a position to see this now in a way that you wouldn't have been months ago. When we started, you remember we started with Merchant of Venice and All's Well with Helena, those two remarkable women. And we went to Anthony and Cleopatra. One of the reasons I wanted to do that is because I wanted to go back, we were going we to go back to the pre-Christian world. But I wanted to go back to it through Shakespeare, who was Christian. I think, I believe he was Catholic. Protestants are going to claim him for their own. Um, because in Anthony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare makes clear, I mean, we did this work together, he makes clear that something's entering that world that Caesar has no clue about, and you can only call it love. Remember when Eno Barbas betrayed, or left Anthony, when... when Anthony was doing foolish things and he went over to Caesar's side. He feels he should not have left him. Even if he was doing wrong, he finally saw it as a betrayal. Even what Anthony was doing wrong. He was no longer acting like the soldier he once was. Anthony and Cleopatra have this love that make them, in a sense, lose their identities as this Roman and this Egyptian. And you know, Barbas leaves Anthony and, and then dies of shame. He didn't kill himself, he dies of grief. And at the end when Cleopatra thinks Anthony is is dead, you remember she takes her life and then her handmaids, um, one of them faints into a death. They are so overwhelmed at the loss of the ones they love. And, and remember um, Eros, which means love, the name of Anthony's soldier. Eros was supposed to take Anthony's life and he couldn't do it. He took his own life. So we're watching something strange enter this Roman world. Shakespeare's making us aware that there is this love at work in the world even though everybody around it could not see it. One of the things that these poets have been doing is helping us to see something's going on around us all the time. Do we have eyes to see it? Can we feel it? These have been, you know, our great themes. So what's happening at the end of um, the Aeneid is that, and this is amazing. So Aeneas has had all these trying adventures for nine books, 10 books in the Aeneid. He's moving now into the depths of battle, in in the darkest horrors of battle. People are killing betrayals. They're breaking truces again and again things cannot become more violent they can't be more violent people are killing each other we didn't see that in the first seven eight nine books here we are we're watching people kill each other and it's out of out of that kind of chaotic violence that something extraordinary is happening the worse it gets interestingly The greater this show of this conversion spirit, this sorrow at, you know, um, it, at seeing somebody die or having a part in it. And, or even Mezentius' conversion when he says, did I live so long that he's undergoing a conversion. So something's happening at exactly that moment when things could not be worse. That's the point. Things could not be worse and out of this something extraordinary is coming and Virgil was the poet who saw one of the reasons I'm trying to give this so much emphasis right now is that you know when we get to Dante the, Dante's guide is going to be Virgil it's not going to be Aristotle, it's not going to be Homer it's not going to be Plato, it's going to be Virgil. Why? because of this because he was the one who saw in the natural order all of these intimations of Christ so that's where we were last week let me stop before we turn to the text but any questions or comments or before we look at the last chapters and try to finish this connie i saw you came in came inside the
3: the,
1: the mosquitoes
0: were hot yeah god boy i hate mosquitoes it's been beautiful the weather the last few days has been so pleasant, yeah,
1: I think, in a way that what you've just been talking about connects
2: with the poem
1: because we're all wanting a just an ordinary get through the day but then <laughs> good God. it becomes to Good Friday, boy, and it's for this not ordinary at all day that. These conversions are happening, and these, it, these awful experiences are going on.
0: Yeah, good for you, Anne. Yeah, thanks for making that connection. I agree. That wasn't on my mind, but I'm so glad you went there because yeah, I agree a lot. Yeah, I'd,
2: I'd like to take it one step further and say that it's a reflection of what's happening in the United States and around the world right now. To quote somebody very smart who just spoke it, out of chaotic violence, something extraordinary is happening. And maybe that's America finding, you know, the dignity of the worth of, of human beings and it's it's coming out of violence, but it's working its magic it, you know that eternal city that the country that we all know the United States can be has to go through this violent stage where we're trying to work out you know the worth of humans, all humans and
0: yeah
2: so I, I really keep connecting this book back to what's happening in our country right now.
0: Yeah, I do a lot to Melody. I think that's where Anne was going. Um, I, I think that's what she had in her mind. I do too. It's, impo- it's impossible for me to watch what's going on today and not and not feel um, um, we're at a point of we had a civil war I mean we almost destroyed ourselves in the you know the 19th century but I've never seen anything like this in the Civil war we still had a common ground to, to um, there was a basis there there was an understanding on both sides even if they disagreed on it that there was a um, a natural law, you know, people shouldn't be treated differently. Or today, there's something of that, but there's what's happened. The Republican and Democrats don't have a common ground anymore. The 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 ideologies play f- a far greater role in the conflicts today than they ever have in our life. So it's it's a it's a natural law, common law, and an ideology, and it it I I really. Th- we're either going to come out of this and become better and closer to what we set out to do when we founded or I mean, I, you may think that I'm being extremist here but or we may come to our end um, good nations fall all of them um, we are at such a point of crisis so I, I couldn't agree more when I look at Virgil um, it'll be interesting to see what you or to hear what you guys all have to say when we get to Dante Um, what Dante's going to say about all of this, but yeah, I feel the same way.
2: If only somebody had some armor we could look at to see the future.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But Bob, I want to thank you for bringing out that uh, episode from the Iliad. When I I read that and then read that a second time about uh, the nighttime mission by uh, Odysseus and Diomedes. Something was gnawing at me. That uh, you know, the the idea was that they were going to be spies. That they were going to bring right. back some useful information. Right. So they go out. They captured a, a soldier. They didn't really extract any useful information from him. They just right. and they killed a bunch of soldiers in their sleep and stole their. Their
0: goods and went back home. They really they didn't accomplish anything except right. for bringing back more food. Right, right. No, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah, we're in a different world with Virgil. It's, the 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 amazing thing for me about Virgil, I mean, it's just the older I get, the deeper my heart goes for him. He carried that world forward. He could not have done what he did without Homer. Homer's everywhere in every line. So, it's not like he's a son saying to hell with your father. It's, he's not dismissing Homer; he carries Homer with him in every line. He's present, but he's adding something to Homer's world that Homer couldn't, and taking us beyond. So he doesn't leave him behind, but very subtly he's changing him. Um, so we've always got these multiple levels at work with Virgil. And um, uh, El- Eliot knew that. If we ever, if we stay together long enough, and we get to T. S. Eliot, we'll see it even more closely but we'll see it in Dante for sure but yep it's amazing it's amazing we, we either become schizophrenic you know with these with these divisions or we get better at holding different things together um, Virgil helps us to hold them together I think here let's go to the um, let me see if I can get I want to get us to the text to see if we can finish this. Um, after the battles that we went over last week, a truce is um, taken for a while so that the two sides can bury the dead. And Aeneas um, hangs up trophies. It's a ritual that they would have performed. Um, he uses um, armor for Mezentius' body as trophies to indicate his victory. He says a prayer to the god and he sets a, um, a procession in motion to take Pallas back to his father Evander. Um, it's, a, it's a tearful moment. Um, um, the Latins meet in assembly and Drances stands up to oppose Turnus, who is all in favor of war. I don't remember, I don't know if you guys remember the Iliad that well, but if if you do, you'll remember that um, Polydamus was the, the prophet sort of figure who kept opposing Hector, and Hector never listened to him. Even when there were bird signs, you know, um, and Polydamus would read them, um, Hector would refuse to hear him. Um, Dronces has that function here. He's con- and Homer knows that. He's like a Polydamus figure. He constantly opposes Turnus um, rebuking him for being too vain, too given to this instinct for wanting to kill and show himself. Um, but Turnus doesn't listen to him. Um, he keeps a- appealing to this masculine sense of victory that we can recover. Um, this spirit that we once had that's being threatened to be taken away by this foreigner. Um, Let me see. Um, They reach a point where they want to make a pact again, on page 335. Latinus sends men to make a pact, and Aeneas says on page three hundred thirty five, this is about line one fifty or so, What unmerited misfortune Latins could have embroiled you in so sad a war that now you turn your backs on us, your friends. Because remember that Latinus and Aeneas first made a pact um, when he ar- when Aeneas arrived. Um, it was understood that Aeneas was going to marry his daughter. Um, Electo came down and upset the mother, and Ternus and started a war, and broke the pack. So Aeneas is looking back at already one broken pact. Um, Do you ask peace from me for those whose lives were taken by the cast of Mars, the god of war? Believe me, I should have wished to grant it to the living. Never should I have come here had not the fate allotted me this land for settlement, nor do I war upon your people. No, your king dropped our alliance, led himself instead to Turnus's fighting, in all fairness, Turnus should have faced death on his field. If he would end the war by force and drive the Trojans out, he should have fought me. Um, so they agreed to a truce again. Um, they buried the dead, and then... Um, um, they meet in, in um, assembly again on page 344. Turnus um, appeals to the racial identity of the Latins again and um, um, Drances opposes him again and then on 345 Turnus says plenty of talk you always have when contests call for action some in the Senate you are all the first ones there, no need to fill the hall with words, big words, you can let fly in safety. I don't know if, ever you, if any of you guys ever watch the parliamentary proceedings, you know, when they're telecast on TV. It's really, it's really interesting to watch politicians um, use rhetoric to present a side with the understanding that that's the only side. So that you're watching very intelligent men and women make these arguments. And, I, and I'm assuming everybody knows that that one of the values of reason is that it can lead us to truth. But very often when you watch people speak, you become aware that they're using reason to convince you of something that is lacking in truth. And we see it all the time politically in what's going on today. So he's answering Drazes um, again. Say I'm afraid when your own sword has left the dead in heaps, the field brilliant with trophies everywhere. What bravery and action can achieve you're still free to experience? No need to hunt for enemies. They ring our walls. Go out to meet them, shall we? Why hang back? Um, can anyone have cause to utter the word beaten, you foul wretch, seeing the are, um risen with Ilian blood, and all Evander's house his time brought low, Arcadian skilled and stripped? So he's appealing to their... Sense of um, not giving in, that um, people are dying, um, and um, they, they respond in, in that way. Um, on page 347, um, he gets the people worked up, and the common people become so aroused by his words. On page 347 at the arm, with uh, at the bottom of the page, with O's their hands went out for arms, and then the young men yelled to arms, even as their despondent fathers wept. Because the old the older people know they're gonna go back in war and people are gonna die. Everywhere now clamor and discord rose into the air above the town, as when bird flocks come down in a tall grove, or swans where the Bedusian channels teems with fish. This is three forty eight at the top give their hoarse throated cries and echoing on echoing pools but turnus caught the moment and made it his he said just so so the townspeople are getting roused they're ready to go out and fight he's approving just so my townspeople hold your counsel stir and praise the name of peace good because they're already ready to go out but he's saying go ahead sit around and talk about peace and they their army sweeps to attack our capital these enemy are at us. Their army sweeps to attack her. That was all. He leaped he leapt up and away, quitting the council hall with rapid strife and gig. Now I want to go back to that line. Turnus caught the moment and made it his. I don't even know what this is. Turnus caught the moment and made it. just on the basis of what's happening in this council, can you make a distinction between Turnus and Aeneas as leaders in war? they're both fighters, they're both warriors. What's the difference between them?
2: So Turnus is the opportunist who looks for ways to um, rally the troops for war so that he can go and fight and look better. Whereas Aeneas is um, not looking forward to war, wants to avoid it, but knows that it's uh, his destiny um, to fight these. But he's trying to make peace first. Um, so just the, you know, ego versus the the non-ego, the yep. the destiny part of it. Yep.
0: Yep. But Turnus caught the moment and made it his. The, I mean, the difference couldn't be more radical. I, I don't think there's anything Aeneas does that's for himself, and I don't think there's anything that Turnus does that isn't for himself. It's a difference between a vainglory and a male ego, you know, that in, um, where a man will use everything for himself, and um, somebody else who has to do these things for something greater than himself. Um, um, I the the two armies engage again after the peace. You remember that um, Turnus the sister comes down and provokes a war, and what the soothsayer throws a spear and the Trojans are wounded, and the two armies go back to battle. That's the second truce broken. They they go back to war, and I want to just take a second because one of the great one of the great um, affirmations in the work is is what Virgil does with Camilla the Amazon the 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 female warrior. Um, I don't want to go through the passages, but if if you you know, if you just look at um, three fifty five and following, amid the carnage like an Amazon Camilla rode exultant, one breast bared for fighting ease or quivered, very feminine but defiant. Um, and it it a long list of the men that she kills. I mean strong men, powerful men. Um, she takes them apart. On 359, one of the Trojans, a man named Aaron's, um, follows her hoping for a chance to kill her in a stealthy way. He's not going to confront her in battle. Um, the men don't. Um, he's going to do it in a cowardly way. He follows her and this is what's interesting. It's, a, it's Virgil admiring the Amazons and yet being critical of them at the same time on page 3.59. Camilla is killing right and left. The, the Trojans are actually backing off. They're, they're fearful of, of her. Um, and then suddenly this guy appears. By chance, Clorius, Mount Sibylus's votary, once a priest, came shining from far off in Phrygian gear. He spurred a foaming mount in a saddlecloth of hide with scales of bronze as thick as plumage, interlinked with gold, the man himself, splendid in rust and purple, out of the strange east, through a Lydian bow um, to shoot. That is, he's, um, there's something, I um, don't know what to call it, flamboyant, maybe even a little bit effeminate. There's all this color and plumage. And she's drawn to it. Um, golden was the bow, the golden too, the helmet, the seer, the tawny gold, the brooch that pinned his cloak as it belled out and snapped in wind, A um, Achami's crocus yellow, so top of 360. Both Eastern style, so there's something Eastern from the East, this exorbitant, sensuous quality to things. Camilla began to track this man, her heart's desire, either to fit luxurious Trojan gear on a temple door or else herself to flaunt that golden plunder blindly as a huntress following him and him alone of all who took part in the battle she rode on through a whole scattered squadron recklessly in a girl's love of finery as she's attracted to this guy and because she is and she's fixed on him it gives um, the Trojan um, errands a chance to kill her. He throws a, um, a spear and kills her. When he does the rest of the Amazons flee. That's the first break in the army. The whole Volscian army then flees. Um, Turnus will get the news and that will be the beginning of the sort of um, um, slow chaotic retreat. But just for a moment, um, what's your response to Virgil's treatment of um, Camilla here? What's remember? What one of one of the things that we're dealing with here is that you've got the Retulians under Turnus, the Volscians under Camilla, the Latins under uh, well, actually no, the the you know the Latins under Turnus too. Latinus is the king, but he's he's withdrawn. You've got those three peoples. So you've got Turnus, Latinus. Camilla, is the major figures, Mezentius comes over to the Rutulians. So Aeneas is doing battle against those major figures, and in one sense, those figures symbolize something of that old world. Camilla is part of it. What is Virgil showing us about Camilla? Um, um, Are we supposed to look at her death as completely glorious? Is, is there something in her like there is in Ternus that that makes us aware that this is something that has to give way for this Rome to come into existence? What do you make of this treatment of her? The way Virgil describes it. Anybody? Doc, are you here? I lost my wife.
2: I look at the women, I mean the, the major women that have been portrayed in this book, uh, Dido, Camilla, uh, Laternis' wife, um, usually when you see them they're not complimentary, uh, well, Camilla at the end I guess, but it's not complimentary because they're they're emotional, they're um, they're over, They're they're Brains are overtaken by emotion, and they just um, they can't think straight anymore. So that's what I'm getting from these women that are in this book. There aren't too many women, but that's the portrait that I see of women from him.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the I mean, one of the anybody else, anybody else.
3: Well, wasn't uh, Camilla from a very young age sort of uh, she was almost a consecrated. To the goddess Diana, and uh, and raised to, to be a, a, a creature of the of the wild, to 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 live on the land. And yep. So I, I'm not, and she was a fierce warrior, but um, that's the aspect that I took away from his
0: description. Yeah. Um, Dido took her life. Ahmad is going to take her life when she gets the news that. Um, Camilla's dead, and Turnus is coming to the city. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a second. And Camilla, or I mean, uh, Aeneas, torches the city, and she sees that happens. She she can't bear it and takes her life. So she and Dido both take their lives. Their lives are so emo com- emotionally, so completely vested in family, their own egos, their own. E- so it's like the counterpart of Turnus with his egotism. Um, The interesting thing about Camila to me is that she's a warrior so she's not like Dida. She's not going to take her life. She will not take her life. Amada takes her life. Camila's a warrior but but she can never escape something in her that's feminine. So she's a huntress. I mean Mike's right on. I mean she belongs to that. um, That is she's not married. She's not going to... She hates men. She will not marry. She's committed to being a virgin. Um, her attachment is the sisterhood of these women, who, the Amazons, who bond together. Um, they are strong. They're warrior-like. They are capable of killing men. I mean, you, you you can't miss it when you when when you read this section because she's killing men right and left. But here, when she sees this guy with his flamboyant colors and these exotic things about him, she's caught by it, and she so. The, the the woman who was a moment before could not be distracted from her war suddenly becomes distracted. Camilla began to track this man, her heart's desire, either to fit luxurious Trojan gear on a temple door, that is, as a trophy, the way men would, or else herself to flaunt that golden plunder. So the egotism, so here we see the counterpart of what we see in Turnus and some of the other men, Um, blindly as a huntress following him. That's not the language used, you know, 20 lines earlier. Um, Blindly as a huntress following him and him alone, of all who took part in the battle. She's got right, left to kill, but her attention right now is, and as Virgil describes it, it's, it's an expression of something feminine in her that can't be denied by the warrior. She wrote on, through a whole scattered squadron, recklessly in a girl's love of finery, it's for this jewelry um, um, that she's after. Um, it's really interesting. I don't know if any of you have watched um, Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring, but if you, I don't even remember the young woman's name, but she's a princess who who's um, capable in and. Um, at one point, she actually comes in with a sword to save one of the great warriors and the, one of the men um, who's about to be killed. Um, but the I think the contrast here in this passage is is that in the good men, I mean, most of the men, even Turnus, Turnus is fixed on battle. He can't take his mind off of it. but but um, remember when he was in the stockade and he was trapped inside, Turnus had a chance to destroy that stockade. He could have burned it to the ground, but he didn't. I, I want to I bring us to that in a second, what Aeneas does. Um, something of his self gets in the way. Um, Camilla is... So the men tend to be disinterested. They get past their emotions. At least that's true for Aeneas and his men. It's what he asks of his men. It's what they do. So it makes his army different from Turnus's, but in Camilla, there's not that sense of a of a detachment. As a woman, her eye catches that thing, and it's it's that attraction that leads her undoing. Um, so, feminine, masculine um, are um, you know are are scrutinized, are are laid before us. Um, when she dies all of the Amazon warriors retreat and when they flee um, it's the beginning of the undoing of the army it's a little bit like Cleopatra (laughs) interesting when she when she leaves the war with Anthony Um, I want to go to the um, end of it um, and just to to catch two things here there have been a number of breaking of um, Of um, pacts treaties. Um, Page three ninety one. When Turnus's sister comes to help him, <coughs> she breaks the truce again, and um, Turnus responds to her on the bottom of 390 over to 391 and he says sister yes I knew you long since when you spoiled the pact by guile that treaty that made and gave yourself to this war now again you need not try to hide your divinity there's this constant sense that there's something wrong in the supernatural order that there are gods who are undermining, spiritual beings who are undermining Zeus's plan or sorry, Jupiter's plan, or and the fates, who are in some ways even greater than Jupiter. That you should see the painful end of your unhappy brother, what am I to do? What stroke of luck can guarantee my safety now? I saw before my eyes, and calling on my name, Moranus downed, great soul by a great wound, and none survives more dear to me. Poor Uffins died, as though to avoid seeing my shame, that, that is, they're getting killed right and left. The Trojans have the body in his gear. But now destruction of our homes, the one thing lacking to my desperate case, can I face that? Should I not give the lie to Drances? Shall I turn tail? That is, will I prove him right? I've been wrong all along. Will this land know the sight of Turnus on the run to die? Is that so miserable? Heaven has grown cold. Shades of the underworld be friendly to me. As a pure spirit, guiltless of that shame, I shall go down among you, never unfit to join my great forefathers. Take a minute. I want to I go on here um, to the end because we, we're about out of time. What's the difference between Turnus here as he faces his end and, and um, Hector at the end of the Iliad? Because you remember, um, Hector put on Achilles' armor. He presented himself as brave but then he runs from Achilles a number of times and finally has to come to an end and says, um, I can't remember his words, but the, but the drift of it was, he cared more about what people would think of him that Polydamus, who had been rebuking him all along, would be proven to be right. And it was on the basis of that that he went out finally to fight Achilles and dies. What's the difference between um, Turnus in this passage that I just read and Hector difference I know this is probably expecting too much because we haven't seen the Iliad in months and months and months um,
2: okay I think that Hector didn't want to be um, thought of badly as you just said whereas Turnus just feels like I don't know. It's fate. There's no reason to fight against it. Um, he's not as worried about what people will think of him as the fact that there's no hope, and he's just gonna go get it done.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's still something heroic in Turnus and wanting to fight. I, one of the, it just seems to me what one of the marks of him that that the the most of the Italians as we see them are very primitive and given to violence. They fight against each other. Evander with the Arcadians is another people. I mean, they live a different way, but all of the rulers, Mazentius, Turnus, Camilla, they're all given to violence. Um, oh, here, let me put it even better because of where it's going. There's something lawless about all. They don't live under a law. Their passions rule them in everything they do. So they're extremely, extremely brave. But when those, when they come up against something greater than those passions, they don't know what to do with them. And in Aeneas, you've got a man who is capable of meeting them as a warrior, but who stands under a law, a judgment, the gods. Here, look at this. Aeneas is wounded when the truce is broken, and they can't get the arrow out of his body. It's only on page 382 when Venus comes along that she applies this herb that they can extract the arrowhead and then the wound heals and immediately he's ready to go out to battle and i just want to read this quote to to leave this with you because we've only got a couple of minutes now on 383 with the wound healing um aeneas is ready to go back into battle ascanius has been by his side the whole time and aeneas takes this moment to say to his son this Avid for battle now, the captain sheathed his left leg and his right in golden greaves, hating the moments lost. He wants to get out with his men and fight. Once he'd fitted shield to flank, harness to back, he hugged Ascanius. this is his son, embracing him with steel, then through his visor brushed his lips and said, think about the difference between this and Hector. When Hector went back, you know, in the very opening of the Iliad, to get Paris and he meets with Andromache his wife he holds his child in his arms and the child screams in terror because the child is looking at this helmet it's one of the most tender scenes in the Iliad look at the difference here Aeneas is dressed in armor hugging his son and it's positive it's a complete reworking of that scene and he says to his son learn fortitude and toil from me my son ache of true toil, good fortune learn from others. My sword arm now will be your shield in battle and introduce you to the boons of war. Other people are going to say, luck is better, depend on good fortune. Aeneas is saying, you can't wait on luck. You have to do whatever it is you have to do and suffer the consequences. And he's calling the son to that. Now, he goes back into battle now um, now, two things are important. One is um, when Turnus got news that Aeneas was returning from the field. By two, he broke his army into two. One coming by the field, and one through a pass. Turnus said to Camilla, "Go to the go to the field and fight. Meet Aeneas there. I'll meet him at the pass." He goes to the pass to ambush Turnus. Mm-mm. I mean, Aeneas. Turnus does. Camilla meets on the field and you know what happens there. Turnus gets the news that Camilla has died and he withdraws from the pass. And just at that moment, afterwards, Aeneas comes through. Chance, good fortune. Now remember what I've been talking about, I've been describing in terms of converging realities, that there are all these prophecies. Remember, um... Uh, the Etruscans had a, a leader that they lost. was a bad leader. And they were waiting for a leader from another world. And Aeneas comes to fulfill that prophecy. Um, Latinus said that somebody would come from a foreign land to marry his daughter. So there are all these prophecies combining. And then we have this event, this situation, this circumstance, where Turnus is waiting to ambush um, Aeneas and gets the news that Camilla's dead and flees, goes back. So all these strange things are happening as if they're combining to bring about this same thing. It's one of the reasons I wonder, it's just, it, it's hard for me to believe that Virgil didn't read um, Isaiah, I don't know. but So when um, this is the passage that I, I, there are only two that I want to look, look at. Um, Aeneas is on the field now, ready to engage. Turnus is an army. He's looking for him everywhere because he wants to settle it with a one-on-one combat. And then he looks at the city on page 388. The troops are fighting. He's trying to find Turnus, And then this happens. Now in his mind's eye, a fire, he saw a great fight to come. He could see everything unfolding. People were going to kill each other. He'd already charged, challenged Turnus to one-on-one combat. Turnus refused. Men are dying. He doesn't want to see that happen. Now, in his mind, eye of fire, he saw a greater fight to come. He called his officers Nentheus, Sergestus, brave Serestus, and climbed a rise of ground round which the Trojan legion came together, crowding shields and spears held it at the ready. Standing amid them on the mound, he said. There will be no lost time in carrying out what I shall say now. He's absolutely in control, says do this. Jupiter stands with us, granted this change of action unforeseen. On that account, let no man lag behind, unless our enemies accept our yoke and promise to obey us. They've broken truces three times now. On this day, I shall destroy their town, root of this war, soul of Latinus' kingdom. I shall bring their smoking rooftops level with the ground. Must I go on, awaiting Turnus's whim to face and fight me once again in battle? Beaten already as he is? I think not. Countrymen, this town is head and heart of an unholy war. Tells them to take their firebrands to the city. They do and torch the city. It's when Amada sees the fire of her own city on page 389 that she takes her life. Okay? Now here's my question: um, Before we get to the very last passage of the book, Turnus was in the stockade. If he had set fire to the stockade the way he did the ships, the stockade would have been destroyed. He had a chance to take that stockade, set it afire. We can't go back to it. You can go back and look at the passage yourself. He could have destroyed. He could have taken the stockade. He didn't. He 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 missed a chance. Aeneas is on the field looking at the city, and he suddenly sees an opening. He says, torch that city. Now, here's my question. Is what he's doing wrong? Is he more violent than Turnus, or even Achilles? How do we look at Aeneas in this moment, this great hero of the Aeneid?
2: I think that he is trying to end the war and he knows this will be the quickest way because he's been through a 10-year war and he doesn't want to go through that kind of thing again. So he's seeing an opportunity not for his own advancement like Turnus, but to, to uh, end this war because he feels like they are the root. Uh, I'll destroy their town, the root of this war. So he
0: feels like this is it. If I can take this, then the rest of it falls. Yeah. Melody, just a side comment. I'm so glad you brought in the tent, because I wouldn't have even... But you are absolutely right on to say that. I'm, I'm glad. I hope everybody got the illusion there, the reference. Remember that Troy was under siege for ten years. Nine and a half years, remember, before it was destroyed. So he had been through a ten-year war and was the one of the survivors of it so for the next 10 years remember the whole the whole quest of Aeneas is to found a city that out of the ashes of that 10-year war will come this amazing city so okay last thing and then I'm gonna cut it here. Um, when Turnus gets the news that Amada has killed herself and the city's in flames he finally accepts the terms of a one-on-one battle. So, the two of them make a pact again, um, um, and they fight. Uh, um, Aeneas wounds Turnus and, um, and has him helpless. Okay, on the very last page of the book, on page 402, he has him disarmed. He's helpless. And he looks at him with a mind to sparing him. Um, and re- remember what Ascanius said in the underworld to tame the proud to you know to, to do those things that that will be the chore of the Romans to do. Um, and remember that when Ternus killed Pallas, that young kid, he put his foot on his body and ripped off that belt and on the belt was that story of a wedding feast, of betrayals in a wedding. Okay. So he's wounded Turnus. Turnus is down, and this is what this is how the book ends on page 42. For when the sight came home to him, because he's looking at Turnus, um, for when the sight came home to Menius, rage of the relic of his anguish, worn by this man as a trophy, because Turnus has on him that belt that he took from Pallas. Blazing up and terrible in his anger, he called out, You and your plunder torn from one of mine, shall I be robbed of you? This wound will come from Pallas. Pallas makes this offering, and from your criminal blood exacts his due. He sank his blade in the fury of Turnus's chest, then all the body slackened in death chill, and with a groan for that indignity, his spirit fled into the gloom below. Okay. Lots of critics, modern critics, say this is the return of Achilles. This is Achilles again. Um, that, that Aeneas, despite whatever he's done, or you know, whatever whatever ends he had, and however Virgil makes us feel about them, that Turnus, I mean Aeneas is no better than Achilles. Um, so two questions here. How do we look at Aeneas at the end? Um, is this the return the what's the word the avatar um, of Achilles the reincarnation the re-emergence of, of Achilles or it, is it not And the second question is we don't the book doesn't end with Rome going up we don't see foundations being laid we don't see, men hacking down trees or ceremonies being performed. We don't see a city rising. The one thing that has driven the action from beginning to end is the founding of Rome. And we don't even get close to it. Um, The book ends with um, Aeneas killing Turnus. So how do we look at this hero? Is it Achilles again? And what are we to think about Rome? The fact that the book doesn't show Rome going up. What's your mind on those two questions, you guys? Heather, where did you go? I don't don't know. Karen, what are your thoughts on this? I know, sorry, I've got... We've got to get to the debate, I know. Um... Any thoughts?
1: One of the things that occurred to me as I read it was the comparison to Moses, who wasn't allowed into the promised land. And because he had a flaw. And in a way, Aeneas, for all the good he did, still was a warrior and isn't the one building room. I don't you know, in a sense he founded it. He did all the things he needed to. But I, that just reminded me of, of Moses not being able to take the Israelites into the promised land.
0: And remember, too, interesting, I mean, the paradox of this, to, it, I think it's important for us always to remember that we're in a fallen world. This is the for Moses and the people. It was the promised land. They never stopped waging war, ever, when they enter that, promised land. They were always at war with each other or at war with people around them. And the, and the wars always had Yahweh's support because the people around them were worshipping false gods. And so many of the Israelites were constantly you know, drawn to them. So um, it isn't as if they were going to go into a land of milk and honey and peace. Um, anybody else
2: Uh, i feel like aeneas had to kill turnus because just like before when the uh, townspeople the council was trying to to make a peace agreement and turnus uh, inspired or incited the anger of the people to go to war aeneas had to take care of him right now na- right then so it wouldn't happen again yeah. it's, it's just like any, you know, like a Hitler kind of character, anybody who could incite his people. But I was surprised after finishing the book that there was no founding of Rome, so I'm glad you brought that up, because that was kind of weird to me.
0: Yeah. Anybody else? Let let me just offer two quick thoughts, because I know you all have the... um, the debates on your mind. Um, good men have to do hard things at times. Um, it wasn't as if, I mean, Moses had a flaw. He killed. He was a murderer, but he was still the one God chose to take his people in. Um, um, good leaders have to do hard things. Um, turn, or Aeneas had to kill other men before this last event that ends the Aeneid. Um we we know how given Turnus is. So so the question to ask is if if Aeneas had spared him, would Turnus have finally made his peace and accommodated and gone along? Um would he have incited people? Would there have been a, res- a resurrection or I mean a revolution? You know, what would he have done? I mean, it's the same question Odysseus faces with the suitors. What would have happened if he'd simply let them go? Um would would people be able to get past their evil one of the things that Virgil deals with that makes him so unsentimental um, is that he knows the cause co- he knows the resp- he, he knows what it takes to deal with evil he doesn't romanticize things that this is not heaven it's not going to be heaven um, that evil exists and people are going to be led to do evil things and Turnus and Amada, um you know, I mean, so many of the people around him, but particularly Ternus, weren't the kind of people who would have been given to making a truce and making it lasting. One of the passages I didn't read tonight, when they made that truce again, when Aeneas made his truce with um, Latinus, he said, "Um, let us make a truce here. And the understanding was that Aeneas, the, the Trojans would not be a ruling people that they would rule together under, under a common law. So he didn't place himself above them. Um, the, the, the wonderful thing that he offered was to bring everybody under law so that they would all be under that law together. And what, I mean, you have to ask yourself, would Turnus have put himself under any law other than his own will? Um so it 's a dark, dark ending. my own reading of it, I mean melody, just to you know to pick up with my own reading is it 's a really dark ending. I think it's another indication of how honest Virgil was about things here on earth that there's a danger in romanticizing things, making them black, white, evil exists, people have to deal with it, and at least my reading i don't i don't know if the work was left incomplete, you know scholars will debate that if we take it as complete. I take it as complete because I find a beauty in it. Because if any of you, have, I've said this before, if any of you have seen The Gladiator, you know the line of that, that slave at the end. I will see you again. I will see you again, but not yet. Not yet. There's that quality to Rome that Virgil saw. That Rome Rome is this city in which people give themselves up. And here's the clincher. Not as it would be for Turnus, so he could have his will now. I want it under my conditions, my time, my terms. Aeneas did everything with the understanding that this thing would come into being, but not for him. So the Rome that Virgil's showing, and it's one that we will Dante will pick up, the Rome is not an image of, of something that will answer all of our longings here in this world. Because they will never be answered, not in this world. The Rome that is at issue here is this image of the universal city, the eternal city, that always draws us to it, to give our lives for it. But not yet. Not yet. That won't answer, that will be answered until Christ comes, and even Christ will say to give to the heavenly kingdom. You have to give up this, you have to give up this, you have to give up this. Not here, not now. It will come. So in an amazing way, it seems to me the ending is fitting. It's, it's Virgil's way of showing. To go into this thing thinking, I can have it here, means we're still holding on to something selfish. It's something we give our lives to in love, in hope, not because we can get it now the way we want. That's Virgil's image of Rome, I think. I mean, we've been seeing it all along. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and you keep doing it. You don't stop. You don't despair. It, it, it's an extraordinary expression of hope or belief or something to come. Anyway, let's let's stop. There's a debate. Um, see how these two men do. We will start Boethius next week, okay? And I will send you some materials very early. So check, your, check the blog early on. I'll, I'll write you an email probably tomorrow or the next day. Um, that will, I think, make the reading really easier. I think it will help you. So, But it's a short book. It's a good book. Uh, it's about a man going to a death. And in some ways, it's very funny, <laughs> if, you can, if you can imagine that. But anyway, it's a really good book. So you guys have a good week. Keep us. um, Let's keep each other in our prayers. Okay. Um, I'll see you next week.
2: Thank you. you. I enjoyed this book. Thank you for bringing it to us.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did.
2: Thank you so much.
0: They're so grateful. I mean, they're so gracious. Sometimes it's not uncommon for them to say thanks when. Спасибо.